Hello, my friends. Welcome to Word Made Digital. I'm your host, Joanna LaFleur. This is season seven, episode 11. Today on the podcast, we have Steve Pemberton. He is the chief people officer for WorkHuman. It's a huge enterprise tech company. And he also has been the senior human resources exec at Walgreens. So basically, we're talking today to a high level executive in corporate America, but he comes from quite an amazing background. And we're going to be talking about mentorship, how to be one, how to find one. uh, And the concept he uses is lighthouses. So thank you so much to our sponsors. Compassion Canada is back again this season. Love the amazing people there and what they're doing to make huge impact through the local church around the world. And then the Church Co., a website building company. I love seeing more and more of you jump on board with this. It's been really exciting this season as we've been talking more and more about the Church Co., how many of you have been jumping on checking out their websites and even, of course, building websites with them because they do it for you. So more on them later. But hey, as always, want to remind you, we have a whole back catalog of podcasts. So if you need to catch up on this season or some of the previous six seasons, we have some great conversations. Like if you like the John Mark Comer episode, we interviewed him previously. Maybe you want to go back and check out the previous time we talked to him, uh, things like that. But we also have a YouTube channel and it was really cool. Um, you know, our team here at We're Made Digital, we were just out in Vancouver, Canada, and it was really cool to connect with some of you in person and also hear how many of you are using these tutorial videos in your own work and in some surprising places. Like I didn't expect some of the places in marketing companies and stuff like that, that you're using them. They were designed to serve church and ministry. So if you are looking at communications and marketing and creative stuff in your church community, in your ministry, in your leadership, level that up, go and check out the YouTube tutorials that we've got would love you to subscribe. We're going to be bringing at you a whole bunch of new tutorials soon. So we don't want you to miss them. All right. Steve Pemberton, as I said, he's the chief people officer at WorkHuman, which is the world's leading enterprise technology company that pioneered the human workplace. I love that. And so prior to WorkHuman, he was an executive at Walgreens and, you know, he's done all kinds of things as like a national speaker, including one of my favorite things on his resume says he has interviewed Michelle Obama. So, you know, he's been in some really influential rooms and the thing we're going to be talking about today is the concept of lighthouses, this idea of people in our lives that light the way. And don't we all need a little light on the path right now because we're all meandering in this strange new reality we live in and trying to understand which way to move forward and who are the wise voices that we can trust. So we're going to be talking about that today with Steve Pemberton. Hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the Word Made Digital Podcast with Joanna LaFleur. You're listening to Season 7. Word Made Digital brings you interviews with Christian creatives and communicators to inspire, challenge, and equip you in your own work. The church has the best news in the world, so we want to help you be the best communicators in the world. Here we go. Steve Pemberton, welcome to Word Made Digital. I'm I'm really honored to have you today. After hearing a little bit about your story, I cannot wait for other people to hear it. So, uh, welcome to the podcast. Well, too kind, Joanna. So good to be uh, with you. I have been equally excited uh, to join you uh, for uh, for this conversation. I mean, we're um, 
we're going to center the conversation around your story because it's profound. I mean, that's really what you go around. I think the most probably being asked about is we'd love to hear a little bit about your own story and we're going to dive into, you know, you as you've gone from this idea of from foster care to fortune 500 exec. Uh, There's a compelling story there, but we want to talk about the lighthouse community, the lighthouse effect in the community of people around us, mentorship, how you prepare as a communicator, diversity in the workplace. We're going to try and hit up a bunch of stuff, but before we go too much farther, I I really just want to pass it over to you. Can you tell us a little bit of your story? Um, You know, tell us, give us some context if people don't know your story yet. I grew up in Massachusetts in a community south of Boston called New Bedford once the whaling capital of the world. Uh, I grew up there in foster care. I was taken from my mother when I was three years old, uh, a couple of weeks before Christmas. I never saw her again. I Mm. was then moved from one foster home to another, and I never really found a permanent home or a safe place, actually. And so, um, you know, it was a turbulent, turbulent childhood. Um, and you're fighting these two battles. One is just to be safe on a daily basis, and then the other is this battle over identity. I have no memory of mother or father or conception of family, and so I don't know who I look like. My birth name is Steve Klakowitz. I'd never heard of a Klakowitz before. didn't know its, its ethnicity. I didn't know what I was. And no one you would tell me. And so those battles every day, you're, you're immersed in the middle of them. And, you know, the only question on each day is going to be the height of the battle. And that's how yeah. it was. Um, actually, even all the way through college, fighting one of those two battles, Your Honor. And, um, I mean, foster care for you... I mean, maybe it was a mixed experience. It was a mixed bag, maybe. Uh, were you moving around a ton between homes? Were you in one or two homes your whole childhood? Uh, what was that environment like? Well, early on, there were so many different homes that I, I could not keep track of them. And certainly my case file doesn't tell you that number. I, I was in one particular home for over 11 years. And uh, that was a very, very difficult place to be. Uh, The family, the foster family lived in a world of guile and deceit. They were violent people. Um, And that combination of being uh, violent and deceitful was why I stayed there as long as I did, because they managed to outsmart everybody around me, teachers, doctors, nurses, I mean, people for whom that was their job. Um, And so the reality of being up against that every every single day is 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 quite a battle. But yeah. I, I would I'd tell you that fortunately though I I had some moments and interactions with people who unknowingly uh, were really impacting my life. Most times unaware that they were doing so, and it, those interactions gave me the strength to just fight one more day. 
Yeah, I mean, in some of my reading and listening to the parts of your story, it's tr- the foster care system and navigating that when there's no one honestly advocating for you. Uh, you know, when when the family you're living with who's supposed to care for you is lying at every turn about what that's like for you and what's really going on in the home. Um, mm-hmm. You talk about um, about reading though as this sort yeah. of escape for you. Oh. Uh, tell us about tell us about books in your childhood. I don't remember exactly how I came to fall in love with reading, but I do know it was my great passion. The childhood was not normal. I didn't have play dates, and I could not play on youth sports. Um, I just didn't do any of the things that normal kids do or or that kids normally do. (laughs) And the only place that I could find release or sanctuary was in books. So I just loved the places they took me, whether it was Hmm. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and Jules Verne or Mysteries, which I particularly loved because my own life was uh, my own life. My own identity was such a mystery. I just loved mysteries. And what I would come to understand is that when you read as much as I did and at that young of an age, it makes you a good student. It Mm. makes you a good writer. And though I didn't talk a lot, I had some command with the spoken word too, but it all came back to that love of reading. The other thing that it did that was so important, it allowed for the creation of this counter narrative to the one that I had been fed, particularly by this foster family. You're worthless. You have no value. Nobody wants you. Uh, You're in the way. Yeah. Yes. Social worker hasn't been here to see you. Uh, You know, you need something on the other end of that scale. And what I had on the other end of that scale was the images of intact families and kindness and caring that came from reading. So I knew that there was another world out there. And the magic of reading transported me into those worlds. So I was, uh, you know, there was a great series called Alfred Hitchcock and the Three Investigators. And I was the fourth investigator, you know. I was, uh, <laughs> I was at the dinner table with Encyclopedia Brown as he solved uh, mysteries with his dad, who was the police chief. I was in those worlds. And nobody could touch me in those worlds. Nobody judged me in those worlds. Uh, And they were magical places. Uh, And Mm. eventually the real world and those magical worlds came together. And they they still are. Yeah, I I think it's so interesting to hear what the role that books played or like the world uh, that those books created played in your life. Mm. Almost like... uh, uh, some form of therapy almost, because I think for a lot of people you see uh, in a book or on a show on TV, you see Mm -hmm. a family unit and you just think that's not real. That's, that's not my situation. That will never be my situation. That's not real. But, but for you, it actually was almost like, um, like a source of hope or a source of, Mm. um, like it, it, it maybe cut through the bitterness that could have been like seeded into your lung life. You have this hardness of heart, um, yeah, I didn't do absolutely that to true. you. Yeah. yeah, absolutely true. I, there were, it was like armor is how I describe mm. it. Uh, okay. It was a combination huh. of armor and sanctuary. So peaceful, quiet, but it was also armor 
because all of the criticisms, all of the attacks, they just bounced off me. And those delivering those blows did not know that they were bouncing off me. So I never had these questions of whether or not I had some value in the world because reading made me a good student. So I knew that I had some capabilities in the classroom. I was raw, but I, but I knew that I, they, that could not be taken from me. Everything else had, yeah. which couldn't take my, my, my gift of, of, of learning away from me. And I would say that that's true for just about any of us. Uh, that you need some counter narrative, you need some sanctuary, you need some armor. You, you well, you need a lighthouse, and those those lighthouses in in our life can provide that kind of protection. The the reason we remember the people in our life that we do is because they provided that to us. They mm-hmm. they gave us this ability, um, this resolve beyond the storm that that we found ourselves in that was not of our of our doing, and so. I, I thought that that for me was so particularly important. I was too young to really understand it exactly that way. You know, but Joanna, for others, it's art and uh, others, it's music, others, it's sports. But I think when you're in the, the inheritor of, of a narrative that is not a positive one, the question is, what is going to counter that and from whom will it come? And each of us have this opportunity and this ability to provide that counter narrative to someone. Hmm. Well, you you tell the story of one of those first lighthouses in your life was a woman who gave you books. Can you tell mm-hmm. us? Can you tell us about her and and maybe point some of those lighthouses, as you would call them, the human lighthouses, out along the way of your story? I'd love to hear some of those. I'd love for people to hear some of those stories. It, it was a love of reading that brought the neighbor to me. Her name was Claire Levin. She saw me reading across the street from this foster home on a rock wall. It was more like a small retaining wall. And that's where I used to read. There was a large oak tree that hung over it, provided me a lot of shade in the summer. So that's where I read. And she came walking past my reading spot uh, one day and asked me um, why, in essence, I was reading the same book that I had been reading the week before. I had never seen her before, but she certainly had seen me. Hmm. And I and I replied by saying, in essence, that when I get to the end, I go back to the beginning so I can see new things. I said something like that. And she says, I see. <laughs> well, later on that night, there's a knock at the door of this foster home, and it's her. And she had in her arms a box of books, which she brought me not only that night, but for the remainder of the 11 years that I was in that home. She always brought books. Now, most times I never saw her, uh, Hmm. but I did see those boxes of books. So I knew where they come from. And, uh, you know, I I had certainly, you know, had remembered her. When I left that neighborhood, when I was 16 years old, I lost contact with her until I wrote uh, my first book. And the people in my hometown read it. They continue to read it. And they went looking for her, and they found her, and they connected me to her. Wow. And so, and so I went to go visit her. And in that conversation, I had the opportunity to ask her the question that had been on my mind all those years. Why? You know, mm-hmm. why, why did you do that? Because in the hustle and bustle of one's own life, why did she stop? 
and not only give the gift of a box of books in, in a moment, but kept doing it over 11 years. Where did that come from? And her answer, I thought, was so instructive. Uh, she said, I was doing something my mother told me to do, to give from where you are with whatever you have. Uh, she um, was Jewish, and that what she was describing was uh, a, an element of Jewish faith that is tzedakah, which is to give what you are able to give. If that's a smile, you give that. If it's a box of books, you give that. Um, and the fact that you don't know how that gift's going to turn out is secondary. That's not why you do it. You don't do it for reward. You don't do it for recognition. Um, it's, it's what's asked of you and expected of you. So some 35 years later, I get to sit down with her and say, well, <laughs> let me tell you what happened with the gift that you gave me yeah. and how that changed the arc of everything. And so, um, you know, that for me uh, was a lighthouse moment. Uh, she was, I'd say, the first, but certainly not the only, uh, a director of a college um, access program was very much a lighthouse for me because she let me know that college was indeed uh, not only uh, possible, but expected <laughs> of me. Hmm. And uh, there was a man who worked for um, her um, who took me in when I was 16 years old, when I finally managed to escape that foster home three days after Christmas, nowhere to go. And I went to live with him for... Um, what was supposed to be the week between Christmas and New Year's while the agency tried to find me more permanent placement. Well, they never did. I was the most difficult kind of case to place. So they never could, they never could place me. And why and, was that? Just, just for a pause for a sec. Because I mean, a kid who reads books sounds like a nice, smart, quiet kid to have in your home. But what, what was it about you? <laughs> uh, why was it difficult to place you in those years? Several driving factors. I've got this case file following me around that says he doesn't have a chance in the world, multiple placements, a quiet boy. I am African-American. I uh, am uh, of light complexion, blue eyes, had a blonde afro at the time, my childhood hair color, and a Polish last name of Clackwood. So they really didn't know to their way huh. of thinking, what kind of family should he be with? Black family, white family, which is one of the most important lessons about diversity, I'd, I'd argue. Be less concerned with what someone is and try to remember who they are, which in mm -hmm. my case was just a young boy, you know, who needed a safe place, a safe place that never really came. And now, in, in complete and utter fairness to social workers who are should be treated as first responders and are very much salt of the earth. The volume of cases is actually even greater today, Joanna, than it was then. Hmm. Uh, you know, all of the, the, the consequences of a society that does, does, does not make opportunity available is upon us now. And we're seeing this every single day, record level of family separations, record level of addiction, record levels of incarceration, um, all driven by this inability um, to attain access to some of the fundamentals of, of life, some of the fundamentals of America. 
pausing the conversation with Steve because this episode is brought to you by The Church Co. And we wouldn't be able to bring this episode to you without them. If you don't know The Church Co., you got to check them out. They're building people websites for free. So you sign up, you choose a plan, and then they have a team of web designers who build you a website at no additional charge. So maybe you already have a website, uh, but you're looking for a new one or an upgrade. Honestly, their sites look as good, if not better, than sites that cost thousands of dollars more. I've, I've seen it. I know this to be true. And they have unique features that a lot of church websites don't have, like church online and CHMS integrations. We're talking about digital prayer, small groups, events, sermons. Basically, they're thinking about you as a local church. The best part is, though, the price. They do all of this, including building the website for free. $29 a month is the starting price. And right now, they're offering listeners of this podcast 20% off as a discount for your first year when you use the code digital, like word made digital. Honestly, it's a no brainer. And hey, they don't just do church websites as their focus. They want to serve the church at a really affordable price. But if you are looking for you know, a personal leadership website, if you're looking for something for your small business, this uh, company, The Church Co., they will do that for you too. So use the code digital to save 20%. Yeah, well, even think statistically, I think of a organization I work with that is trying to reach young girls, you know, that uh, 10 to 14-year-old girl, uh, because they're statistically the most vulnerable coming out of foster care for uh, tra- human trafficking, um, that they don't have a sense of uh, rootedness in a family or a community or a sense of value and they get caught up with the totally the wrong older creepy guys that end up selling them um, yes. before they understand what has happened to them um, and then they're stuck um, all to say that yeah so that organization uh, you know is trying to get to them before they get trafficked um, yes. but yeah yes. it's just hugely hugely vulnerable the cycle of of crime and vulnerability mm. you know uh, against children and youth coming in out of foster care. So, I mean, for you, you're coming out, you're, you get told though, at that critical age, your, your teenage years, that college or university, like you could go on to more education, uh, Mm -hmm. of some kind. Um, but I mean, you have no money. (laughs) Uh, so how did, how did you, how did you journey this? Was it, was it more lighthouses? Were there people who helped you pay for that or helped guide you? And a lot of us, our parents might help guide us in those kinds of decisions of what to do after school, after high school. It was, it was first the upward bound program, which is a college access program. And there are many of those kinds of programs all across the country. So we really should support those organizations wherever they are because education is the great antidote to poverty hmm. uh, and access to education specifically. So for me, I, I realize I have the academic ability, but not the financial resources to attend. Well, the man, John Sykes, who took me in when I was 16, I expressed this to him one evening. He was a bachelor living on his own. And when I told him that uh, I didn't know how I was going to pay for college, he sends me on this mission, Uh, sends me to the guidance counselor's office and says, there's a big book of scholarships there. You should get it, bring it home, and we'll we'll go through it and see which one you should apply for. And so uninformed was I that I asked him what scholarships were. 
And huh. he said, well, that's it, it's it's free money in a way, he said. Not entirely free, but it's kind of like free. And I and, and so I understood that concept. <laughs> so <laughs> um, so I and I did as he asked. I bring home the book and we're we're having dinner. And as we're going through it, I see a scholarship for left-handers. Blew me away. There's a scholarship for left-handers? Really? So like I tell you mean him, left hand, like left-handed people? Left-handed people. Scholarship for <laughs> okay, yeah, people. it was a scholarship for left-handers. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which gives you a sense of the scholarships out there for everybody, maybe, right? <laughs> so when I uh, tell him I'm going to apply for that scholarship, uh, he says, well, you're not left-handed. And I said, I know, but by the time they figure it out, I will have learned. <laughs> that was my answer. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so uh, he he laughs at this and then asks me to give him the book. And he's going through it. And he sees a, a scholarship and his eyes get really big. And he taps it. This one. that You should apply for this one. Now, as soon as I see the title... Joanna, I started arguing with him. I'm like, there's no way. There's, there's no way I can win that scholarship. He's like, no. You absolutely uh, should apply. And we're, I mean, we're going back and forth over this. And I said, well, look, you know, I'm going to get rejected uh, because it clearly says that this is for daughters of the American Revolution. And so <laughs> I said, you do know I'm a boy, right? And, and finally... I just said, you know what, I'm going to apply just to prove him wrong. And uh, my plan almost worked. So I did get rejected. And I showed him the rejection letter. And when I showed him the rejection letter, he looked at it and he said, yeah, that's not right. You're going to have to write them back. I, I said, and say what? He said, ask them if they're sure. So I did that too. And they were actually very nice to me. They wrote me back, and their message was something along the lines of, not only are we sure, but we're quite sure, in fact. And, <laughs> you are uh, not a daughter of the American Revolution. <laughs> you are not a daughter of the American Revolution, uh, and good luck with your endeavors. And don't write us anymore. <laughs> so uh, what, what did John know? Well, a couple of things he knew that I did not know. One... Uh, he, I mean, he obviously knew I was going to get rejected, right? He knew that. But what he knew that I did not know was that I was going to get accepted by a lot more. Hmm. And the second thing he knew that I did not know or even understand is that the very adversity that I had encountered up to that point in my life was going to make me successful. That was his point, actually. Along with the other one, which was, don't let fear of being told no stop you from realizing mm. what has been a childhood dream for you. So, so what, and I remember him saying exactly that. So what if they reject you? What do you care? What do you care? You've already had to deal with a lot worse than that. So what do you care? And I remember that at any time I have experienced any kind of, uh, <clears throat> you know, setback, I think about it that way. And in fact, because of that experience with him, I would tell you that I, as a result, I've never failed because the way John defined failure was never trying, either because you were afraid of being rejected. Uh, you didn't want to take the risk. That to him was failure. That to him was mm -hmm. failure. Could you have setbacks? Yeah, 
of course you would have setbacks. Everybody has setbacks. Uh, and so, you know, there's these broader life lessons, you know, in there, uh, in that moment, in, the, in that experience. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Well, and, and, um, I love too, what you're saying. This is another example of someone in your life who you're still quoting and referencing what he taught you this many years later. Um, you know, I think a lot of us, uh, want to be that kind of person or we can mm-hmm. think of maybe a few of those people in our own life. But I think too, mm-hmm. like I think of the barriers to get there, like like the the woman who saw you and gave you books, the guy who welcomed you as a bachelor into his home. There's lots of reasons why you would say no to having this kid in your home. Um, there's lots mm-hmm. of, you know, it just totally uprooted his bachelor pad or I don't know what the exact mm-hmm. situation is for his, yeah. you know, his life. But, yeah, uh, yeah. this woman, you might be viewed even as, um, like kind of creepy or intrusive if you're the woman coming and talking to a kid on the street and bringing mm-hmm. books. Like mm-hmm. I think societally there, there's some, there's social barriers, I think, to, to some of these opportunities. Um, mm. You know, what would you say to people about that? Like, how do you get over some of that? Because you see a need, you think, am I the one to do something about it? But there's all these reasons, you know, whether personally or just culturally, that would be like, no, don't get involved. Think back to our own experience. Any of us, whether we're hosting a podcast or in the business world as I am and an author, you look back and refer back to your own experiences. And think about the people and the paths that those people created for you to enjoy your life as it is today. Mm. And you're likely to think of that elementary school teacher, uh, that high school coach or counselor, uh, a first boss, a kind neighbor. You're likely to remember who your lighthouse was. And you don't have to spend a lot of time thinking about it. And if indeed you do know you do know who that is, and I would suggest that you do, then there is this implication. I'll say I'll, I'll, something greater than an implication. There's an obligation for you to be that to somebody else. Hmm. You owe, in other words, you owe. Now that person could have been mom or dad too, but that was Claire Levin's point. That was what her mother told her. You owe. <laughs> In essence, you owe. And I think the other barrier is, is uh, that we, we, we have wrongly concluded or assumed that to be a human lighthouse in somebody's life means I have to be wealthy. I have to have this enormous platform that people will read what I say and it will be influence and impacted. So I have to be this enormous being in the world in order to have an impact. I think that is a perception of the barrier. However, go back to your own experience. Were the people who most impacted your life, were they, were they those kinds of people? Did they have massive Twitter followings? Were yeah. uh, they on the nightly news? Uh, were they very wealthy? I would, I would venture to say that they're probably not or were not. The lighthouses in my life were not. And the other point I would make is that there are people, many of us actually, who are lighthouses and don't even know we're being lighthouses. So a lighthouse is not necessarily 
not some you ask yourself, you say, well, I want to be that. I would suggest that maybe you already are that hmm. because the lighthouse never knows who's watching it. The lighthouse never knows who draws strength from their example, from their conviction, uh, who draws uh, strength from the, the lighthouse never knows who sees it. And so this idea, which is also a barrier, is that I need to be able to see the return on what I do. But that's not the essence of faith, right? Faith says the opposite of that, that you need not see the outcome to know that you're having an impact. It's not necessary. Because and if that's how you're thinking, then that, at least biblically and spiritually, violates the covenant, right? Which is the left hand ought not to know what the right hand is doing when it comes to giving. And so... The last point I would make is, is that we also are witnessing what happens to the character and the culture of a society when people avoid that obligation and step away from it and say, well, that's not my responsibility to go bring him books. Or, well, what kind of impact could I ever have? Well, this is no accident that what we talked about earlier, the number of family separations and levels of addiction that we're seeing because people have lost hope. And they're also looking for hope in the wrong places and to the wrong people rather than the everyday people that are all around us. So I would say, you know, lastly, for anybody who would say, well, who am I to be a lighthouse? That's the wrong question. The real question is, who are you not to? Yeah. Well, and I even just think in the the faith community, the statistics of like if every if every church in America took in like not 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 family, but every church. So a family in the church uh, Mm -hmm. took like one kid into their care from the foster system or, you know, a need for, you know, foster to adopt or whatever it is. Basically, the entire crisis of foster care in America would go away. If like mm. one family in every church did their part, meaning it's not every family in the church, even just one family just one. in the church, no. you know, I mean, that's how simple it is. And I know how many barriers we put on it, but how simple, like yeah. this is a problem that can be solved by people who say they have a faith system that, you know, that points them to caring for the the least mm. of these. Um, and, and a, and a scripture that mentions the word orphan 27 times, 27 times mm. the word orphan is mentioned in the Bible and across multiple books and in very specific ways about the obligation and responsibility that we have to the orphan. The judgment when you were not a protector, uh, Scripture mentions strength of the fatherless. I mean, think about that as a phrase for a moment. (laughs) Strength of the fatherless, in referring to the orphan. uh, That there is this strength, there is this ability that one develops and has as a result of being orphaned. Um, It is also no accident that in children's literature, the archetype that is the orphan is all around us. Batman was orphaned. Superman was orphaned. Uh, there's little orphan Andy. Uh, Andy, yeah. there's um, um, even well, Kevin McCallister. I'm in Canada, so Anne of Green Gables is the yes. Canadian orphan story. Yeah. 
and it's and isn't that fascinating, Joanna? Right, that we don't and until you start listing all of all of the individuals have been orphaned, you realize that there's this much broader narrative about the orphan specifically, and. Um, even, uh, you know, in America, the most popular holiday movie probably of all time, Home Alone, is about a young boy who was, albeit temporarily, orphaned. And, yeah. and so there's Abandoned this Abandoned at Christmas, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, so, you know, to, to, to me, it, it's, it's actually, you know, Scripture is very clear about what our faith obligation is to the orphan. To your point about one family in a church, I mean, there's no, there's nothing on the other side of that ledger that says that's going to balance that out. I don't, I don't think there's anything that can, that, that, that message cannot be denied. I'll say it that way. Pausing the conversation here again because this episode is brought to you by Compassion Canada, and we couldn't do without them. You know, in this era where we're wondering, can we travel or not, or what are places we're allowed to even come and go from easily? It's been a long time for a lot of us since we've jumped on a plane with a backpack, you know, gone and explored a new place far away. Do you feel ready to go somewhere yet? I know I'm itching for it. Well, if you, like me, are ready to explore a new place and you're frustrated you can't quite get to that place yet, I got a kind of cool idea for you. You could jump over to Compassion.ca and travel around the world. There are so many ways you can be part of this transformation that Compassion Canada is bringing to communities around the world. Like in Uganda, you can learn and help bring laptops for online learning, or you can help reopen a small business in Mexico, or you can help build a new home in Rwanda. There are 25 countries where you can make a difference, and every dollar counts as you learn about them, grow with them, and invest money into people so much. There are so many places that you can go and make an impact, even if you can't actually physically get there yourself. So go over to compassion.ca slash donate and check it out. There's all kinds of transformation that awaits. Yeah, I mean, and, and the other piece you're talking about, the obligation of Christian communities, church communities, or organizations of large groups of Christian people, whether that's, you know, a charity or whatever, this is this, this, the broad category of multiculturalism. Like you're talking about being the kid who couldn't find a home because they wanted to place you with people that were like you, quote unquote, but they didn't know where that even was. And now you work in multiculturalism in like large corporate America. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. So, I mean, there's, you know, you would spend many, many hours and many, you spent a career working on, on this topic, so we can't cover mm-hmm. it in 10 minutes. But, mm-hmm. but um, you know, what are some markers of, I guess, moving from a tokenism to, to a real inclusion of people who are different than us? Particularly when I think of this, I'm, I'm addressing faith leaders, church leaders, mm-hmm. of people who have choices, like me, people who have choices of who we invite on our podcast. Who do we give voices to? Um, I'd love, mm-hmm. you know, your insight and I'd love your critique too, <laughs> um, because we're not doing it well. No, uh, I think you'd be hard pressed to find any society that's doing it well. And the consequences of not doing it well are all around us. You know, the inability to embrace what is God's gift to us, which is diversity. I mean, you know, man can claim uh, a lot of things, 
Um, he cannot claim to be a creator of life and he cannot claim to be a creator of diversity. That's God's doing. Um, so I start always from that fundamental premise. Uh, and to recognize and realize that there is this um, duality of difference and commonality that exists in every single human being that, that you meet uh, is to me the pathway uh, through it all. Uh, and I was trying to make this point very specifically in the book about the how the lighthouse in and of itself is quite literally a framework for how to navigate and manage uh, conversations about diversity and equity and inclusion. Because the lighthouse is there in a harbor or sitting on a cliff, and it is really trying to steer you away from difficulty. So the lighthouse doesn't say, come this way. <laughs> you know, it says, don't come this way. That, that way is the better, safer way for you to go. Right. But when it's doing that, it doesn't ask, well, what's your race? What's your gender? Uh, are you an indigenous people or not? Who'd you vote for in the last election? Lighthouse not concerned about any of that. All it sees really is your humanity. And because it does, it says that you're worthy and that you have value and that my role in this moment as a lighthouse is to protect your humanity by guiding you towards safe harbor. Mm. If us right. as human beings acted and behaved in that way. So the White House doesn't, doesn't, does not qualify your distrust, nor does it render judgment on the fact that you're uncertain or in a storm. It doesn't ask you any of those things. If, if we as people behave that same way, I'm not, I'm not going to concern myself with whether you're disabled or part of the LGBTQ community. I'm going to see your humanity first, which we know is God's gift. You know, then so much of what we see around us uh, would, would dissipate, much like your earlier example of each one, one family in a church adopted a child. Well, you would see the same kind of thing. What, what, what we have to get away from is, you know, this idea that all different experiences can be boiled down into one single thing. I don't. I just don't think that's possible. I know on my teams, uh, I always want to have different perspectives around me. If you navigate the world as a woman, you navigate it differently than I do. If you navigate the world with a disability, you navigate it differently than I do. And therefore, that means I have something I can learn from you. And that, I think, then has such a big impact on the products that we create uh, the way that we market, uh, the constituencies and the customers we talk to and how we talk to them. I mean, I'll be honest, I can't tell you the number of times that a woman's perspective has saved me from embarrassment. I can't even, <laughs> I can't, I can't even count. But you know what I did? It taught me to learn. It, 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 it taught me to ask, to always ask uh, for that particular perspective. And um, it makes me, I, I think it makes me informed actually, and wiser to ask somebody of a different life experience than me to weigh in uh, on, on, on things. Uh, the last thing I would say is that don't disqualify ourselves, which I, I see a fair amount. Uh, well, I'm not a diverse person. I'm not an indigenous person. 
and so what would I know about diversity to which like my if answer I'm a, is, if I'm a white guy, what can I feel like I'm not allowed to talk about this issue. Right. And what I, yeah. uh, what I hear is avoidance and deflection. Um, and when in fact, you know, you're, you're as qualified to speak about diversity as anybody else. And why is that? Well, because you understand fairness, you understand equity, you understand the importance of inclusion because that's how you have to navigate the world too. So this idea that diversity is beyond you uh, is not borne out in any kind of fact. And and most, even you know, and most white men can point to an experience or two where they felt othered, where they felt that they were in the minority. I had a good friend of mine one time. Uh, we were at a social event and um, kind of leaned over to me and he said, uh, I, w- "I wonder what it." it you go, I'm just sitting here thinking about how you must feel being the only person of color in this room. You know, just recognizing that for a moment. And, but when I asked him later, um, uh, he, he said, well, I, he, goes, well I was, I, he goes, I was also thinking about the time that I, I was playing college basketball and I was the only white guy in the gym, right? And he goes, I remember how that felt, you know? Uh, but he also was very quick to point out that he had never been more welcomed and supported because it's also true diverse people in in uh, our own communities are always naturally inclusive because we know what it's like to be othered so our 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 right. initial tendency is to be welcoming actually it is not to disconnect you and not say you don't belong here yeah that's so fascinating it's um again turning like, like we went back to in the earlier part of the conversation, like coming from a really negative, um, even violent background, whether emotionally violent, physically violent, you know, intellectually, like a really dark place and that you found this light in books and saying that people who have experienced being othered can actually be quite welcoming and hospitable to other people because they knew what it felt like and they don't want to do that to other people. The, yes. Th- this is a, I mean... Uh, as I said, a conversation we could have much longer if we had the time. But the place I want to get to last in our conversation today is around communication, because obviously these people can hear you or listening to you. You're a communicator. You do this all the time. You've done, I even think, you know, I watched a TED talk of yours. Um, so a lot of people listening are communicators, whether full time or it's a part mm-hmm. of their work. Um, give us a little bit of inside, um, scoop on how do you prepare for these talks? Ah. What is some of your advice to other communicators listening on how to be a better communicator or how to prepare before you give a talk? It is certainly a combination of art and science. The science part to me is the framework of, of message and your hierarchy of message. What is the single most important thing that you want to convey? What is that? And you have to write that down before you even get into the speech or anything like that. What is the single most important message you know, that, that, that you want to convey or messages? And you stack rank them. You know? um, and, and then uh, one of my, I, I don't know if it's, if it's a secret or, or, or not, uh, but I'm always trying to provide you with a framework, a metaphor, something that you'll walk away with because you won't necessarily remember the advice of one, two, three, or four, but you're more inclined to remember the framework, right? So, um, you know, the lighthouse effect, uh, I, I called it 
I called my uh, my my uh, my my last my latest book that for a very specific reason, because we all know what a lighthouse is. And three weeks later, you might go, you know, I don't remember everything, but I remember yeah. the lighthouse. And yeah, what's more, you might huge see a lighthouse. visual metaphor, yeah. Absolutely. So visual metaphors as a way of making a point. And oftentimes I see the opposite happen where we want to dispense the advice and then, you know, the, the metaphor uh, comes on a bit later. Uh, and then I think there, it's got to be this um, avenue of, 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 of flexibility almost in, in, in message. So one of the things when I'm speaking, I am very purposeful about this. I uh, am always trying to allow for even at the last minute, something to impact me that I can now, um, I can pivot off of. And I'll give you a couple examples of this. Uh, so uh, on Sunday, I delivered the commencement address for a class of 2020 at my alma mater, Boston College. And I was talking, in essence, to them. I only had like eight to 12 minutes or so. I had, so I had to give them a visual metaphor, right? I had to do that. And, uh, but in that allowance for something um, uh, uh, that would stick with you. And I, I'm, I'm thinking about this. So I, he, I, I talked to the organizers and I said, okay, because they had mass first and they had commencement. So I said to the organizers, I said, well, how much time is there between the, the end of the mass and the start of commencement? They said 15 minutes. I said, okay, so I'm going to walk out amongst the graduates. I want to spend some time talking. I want to spend 15 minutes talking to them. That's that's what I did. And I made what they told me part of my remarks 15 minutes later. Oh, and, that's cool. And one of them was of this young woman. Her name is Hina. There were five girls that were all taking a picture. Uh, they were representing their individual schools. And so they wanted me to take a picture as a commencement speaker. I did. And I said, okay, I asked all five of them real, you know, it was a I'm like, so who's here to see you graduate? And Hina says, there's nobody here to see me graduate. My mother and father are in Madagascar. They couldn't travel. And so, and, but then she says, I'm a nurse. And so I uh, have invited um, one of my clients here. And, and so as soon as I heard that, automatically, Joanne, I'm thinking, I'm going to make that part of my remarks as a way of making a point. And my point was... Uh, and I told this in less than 15 seconds, in less than 15 seconds. Um, and I said that um, uh, Hina's parents could not make it. She's a nurse on the front lines of a pandemic. She's joined by her client today. And, and they're joining Hina to celebrate this day. Uh, they are reminding all of us that family is not just what you're born into. It's also who you find along the way. So you can see in right. 15 seconds, right, there's a tightness yeah. of communication, visual metaphor, example, and lesson all happening at the exact same time. Second one real quick, I'll tell you, I was interviewing Michelle Obama uh, back in 2017, I believe this was, and spent a lot of time preparing. And one of the ways I did that, I looked at other interviews she had done, and two things jumped out at me. One, most of the conversation was about her husband. My wife loves me. She doesn't want to spend all day talking about me all the time. I don't care how great an individual <laughs> is. Yeah, and, you don't. And, you want to talk about yourself, not your famous partner. Yeah, exactly right. You know, exactly right. 
And, and, and then on top of that, uh, her famous partner would be the first one to tell you that he wouldn't be who he was if it weren't for her. So there was, I always, I always, I was like, that's something's off there. So I, now what did I say? I said, I'm going to ask her one question about him. That's it. One question. That's all I did. One question. The other thing I picked up on was not just in interviews, but she always went to a different place when you asked her about children. And I was always amazed at the interviews who never picked hmm. up on that. Right. And that's, there was, and, she was resonating with it and there was more they could have, they could have pulled off of that more. Yeah. But what did they do? They wanted to go back to the celebrity. They wanted to go back to him. And I thought, no, her power is in her love of children. And what, you know, what's amazing is that I, 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 as I was asking her that I could see her begin to get emotional because we were five feet away from each other. Uh, and I could see her begin. She was, I could tell once she was grateful that I had even asked that or had seen that. And then it just gave her an opportunity to really talk about how important she thought children, you know, really, really were. So um, a lot of preparation goes into it. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of homework. Uh, but I do think having a hierarchy of message a visual metaphor and examples that people will walk away with uh, are are so instructive, so powerful. Lastly, I, I mean, I, and I do get into, in, I, I mean, I, I I do use intonation and inflection and and pauses. I do that in very specific ways because all of that is power. I work really hard not to say um, even in general conversation. So as you and I are talking right now, I am purposefully pausing in between my sentences rather than saying, um, because what um says is, I don't know what I'm going to say next. I'm trying to figure yes. it out, but pause. So you just pause and you know what? Nobody's the wiser. Powerful communication tools. Yeah. And to watch yourself and realize how many times you did it. Uh, <laughs> so you need to learn some, yeah, you write some self-control around ums and mm. awe fillers. I love that. Well, Steve, uh, there's so many nuggets that people will pull out of today and we'll draw some of those out in the notes. But what we also want to include in the notes from the conversation is where do people find you? If you want to send people to your book, um, to mm -hmm. your favorite places to hang out on the internet, where do you want to send people today? So you can go to my website, stevepemberton.io, uh, where everything I am up to is there. Uh, and similarly, so you can find me on social media. Uh, at uh, I, Steve Pemberton. Um, that's true on LinkedIn. That's true on Twitter and Facebook. And Instagram are, are the primary places that uh, I am. I, I always encourage people to share their stories with me. I love hearing stories of other people's lives and journeys. That's what really drove the lighthouse effect. I wanted to tell other people's stories. And I'm working on quite a few other things as well. I do have a master class. It's going to be released in a week or so that I'm co-hosting with one of the people that I wrote about, one of the 10 lighthouses that I wrote about. Oh, and cool. So it's, it's, it's fascinating. And what I'm really trying to do ultimately, Joanna, is a bit of what you're doing, which is trying to create platforms for us to connect and find our more common story and to do that through you know, something that uh, has at times been co-opted, and that is, is faith, and, and try to, in some small way, restore our faith in each other. 
I love that. Steve, thank you so much for your time today. I think people are seeing and listening when they hear it. There is so much more to you than meets the eye. I just mean, even in one story, there's a whole book worth of stories, even just some of the examples you've given. So thank you so much for your time today. I do want people to go find The Lighthouse Effect and all these resources you mentioned. I am now very curious about this masterclass that's coming out. Um, so we're gonna um, we're gonna link to that as well in the show notes um, um, because it'll it'll be out I think by the time this releases in a couple of weeks. So thanks so much, Steve. Thanks, Ryan. I love being with you. Steve, thank you so much for that conversation. It's great to just get in. Um, the story and the experiences of someone else who's not like myself. And, you know, that's what we want to do on this podcast is to learn, to grow, to think from a different perspective. So thanks, Steve. Next week on the podcast, we have my friend, Ashley Abercrombie, who is from LA and she has written a book and is thinking a lot about and advocating in the world, in the blogosphere, about learning to disagree and how to navigate conflict in our relationships. Uh, In this world on fire, I think we all need to grow these kinds of muscles. So you want to come back for this conversation with Ashley Abercrombie next week. Thank you so much to our sponsors, Compassion Canada and The Church Co. for making this whole podcast season possible. Reminder to go check out the YouTube channel for a back catalog of podcast tutorials, all kinds of useful things. If you subscribe there, you won't miss any of it. But also the Digital Church Facebook group. I haven't told you about that again today. We've got all kinds of people connecting in there to meet meaningful community. And we're talking about all things digital church, evangelism, discipleship, creative use of technology, the problems and concerns we might have. We're posting like the most up-to-date stuff in there. So you want to get involved in the conversation and we'll see you next week with Ashley Abercrombie. Thanks for listening to the Word Made Digital Podcast with Joanna LaFleur. If you like this content, hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Rate it and share this episode with your friends. Head over to wordmadedigital.com for more free tools and helpful content for creatives and communicators. We love helping you communicate the best news in the world.